This is the IEEE USA Insight Podcast, Episode 17, a monthly program featuring news, information, and updates from IEEE USA headquarters in Washington, D.C. And now your host, Chris McMains. Are you ready to dream big? ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineers, in partnership with McGillivray Freeman Films and presented by the Bechtel Corporation, is producing the IMAX film Dream Big, Engineering Our World. The 3D production will premiere in giant screen theaters during Engineers Week in February 2017. The film, which will have a running time of 45 minutes and largely be shown in science museums around the country, is designed to inspire people of all ages to appreciate and better understand engineering. And hopefully it will inspire some younger audience members to pursue a career in engineering. Jeff Friedhofer, who represents IEEE USA on the Discovery Steering Committee, has been playing a key role in reviewing some of the outreach materials that will support and enhance the Dream Big program. Ten web videos will extend the stories, including one on wind energy. Producers are trying to ensure that as many branches of engineering as possible are portrayed for their positive contributions to our health, happiness, and safety. IEEE Technologies will be well represented. To learn more about the project, see a trailer, and find out how you can be a Dream Big volunteer, go to www.asce.org backslash dreambig. In mid-September, IEEE USA pulled its support for an immigration bill aimed at reforming the H-1B temporary visa program. Representative Zoe Lofgren, whose California district includes Silicon Valley, went so far as to say that the bill wouldn't do a damn thing to stop outsourcing. The Protect and Grow American Jobs Act aimed to close a loophole in H-1B law designed to keep visa workers from displacing Americans. The latest example of this comes from the University of California, which announced plans to replace its U.S. IT staff members. As reported by Patrick Thibodeau of Computer World, the legislation sought to curb this by requiring employers to raise H-1B visa holders' pay from $60,000 to $100,000. The thinking is that firms would be less likely to hire visa workers and let their American employees go if they had to pay such a high salary. However, IEEE USA objected to a section of the bill that would have allowed employers to include cash bonuses. Such bonuses are usually conditional upon meeting performance goals. Firms could easily skirt the higher salary requirement by saying the visa employee didn't meet the incentive. IEEE USA Government Relations Director Russ Harrison told Computer World, We're back to where we started. We have hundreds of thousands of Americans losing their jobs and Congress almost, but not quite, taking up a half-hearted effort to do something about it. The bill was removed from consideration on September 13th. Now it's time for IEEE USA eBook Corner, highlighting new free and existing IEEE USA eBooks available to IEEE members. Volume 2 of the new IEEE USA eBook series, Rewarding Employees During Tight Salary Times, by author Harry T. Roman, offers readers more tips on how to keep your top-notch employees motivated when you don't have the budget to do so. 
It's the employee recognition problem that almost every manager has faced. How do you reward a deserving employee when the budget won't permit it or they've reached the upper limits of their salary grade? In the second volume of his new IEEE USA ebook series, the veteran engineering professional and educator says it's important to recognize high-performing people in ways that will keep them motivated and on point, all of which keeps these valuable staff members in your company and in your department. In Volume 2, Additional Techniques, Roman discusses a variety of techniques that involve encouraging employees to represent their company in the community and in industry. He points out that companies that encourage their employees to participate in outreach to schools will reap the rewards of community recognition. Further, they will be perceived as caring organizations who want to serve the community as well as their customers. He adds that, that Ventures with Academia also offer the opportunity to preview some of the talent that will soon be seeking employment, additional motivation for the employee and being the point person for the company's efforts with colleges and universities. Rewarding Your Employees in Tight Salary Times Volume 2 contains many more proven ideas for showing appreciation and motivating key employees. Together with the first volume, these ebooks provide managers with a wealth of ideas and inspiration. Both vol volumes are available for $4.99 each for IEEE members and $7.99 each for non members at shop.ieeeusa.org. I'm Georgia Stelludo for IEEE USA. In the IEEE USA Inside Spotlight, we bring you close up to a newsmaker or public figure with a quick one-on-one -on -one interview. This month, Chris talks with Corey Doctorow. Corey is a science fiction novelist, blogger, and technology activist. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and holds an honorary doctorate in computer science from the Open University in the UK and is a visiting professor. He is also MIT Media Lab's activist in residence. In 2007, he served as the Fulbright Chair at the Annenberg Center for Public Diplomacy at the University of Southern California. Well, Corey, thank you very much for joining me. We uh, here at the, the finishing touches to the Future Leaders Forum in New Orleans, and we just heard Chris Washburn and his jazz band from New York City perform. Uh, you look like you were really enjoying it. Oh yeah, it's some of my favorite music, and I, I've been here for about four days now. My wife and I have been down on Frenchman Street where they're playing tonight, every night, uh, going from club to club, listening to the street musicians. It's my favorite thing to do in New Orleans. Tomorrow I'm getting a, a backstage tour at Preservation Hall. I can't wait. So they're performing at Snug Hall tonight. Now, of course, Snug when... Harbor. Snug Harbor. Snug Harbor. Snug Harbor in the French Quarter and... Uh, no, in Frenchman Street. Well, you see, I've got to improvise there a little bit better. Frenchman Street, Snug Harbor. Yeah. Okay. Good lesson, because that's what we just were told, that uh, failure is okay. And I know you've written a number of books. I imagine you probably have a number you started and maybe never completed. Lot, a lot of stories that never went anywhere and a lot of story fragments that never went anywhere. Thankfully, only one book that never gelled. Um, but I think, you know, one way that this failure mantra fits in with, with um, engineering and technical practice is in uh, technical publishing. There's a great move afoot to publish negative results. And it's a real problem with the way that uh, journals are structured that uh, they're really only interested in positive results. The, those are the only ones that have news value. And of course, with open access now, since there's no cost to maintaining a repository, we can and I think should start thinking about storing all of 
our negative results in databases. Because if you think about it, first of all, most of this research is publicly funded in, in whole or in part. So we have, you know, NIH grants and DOT grants and DOD grants going to do work that never gels, which is fine because mistakes are how you find uh, what does work. But they're rep replicating things that were already known not to work except they were never published because there's no headline finding in this didn't work. And so, uh, you know, with, with um, uh, NIH and other uh, organizations with state funding, government funding now requiring open access publishing, and with things like the Register of All Trials for Pharma, I think we're going to get a lot more negative result publishing, and it's really important. And then that way we can't keep, we don't have to keep repeating the mistakes of the past. And, and wasting researcher time and researcher energy. And, you know, it, it, I write a lot of book reviews, and I tend to just review good books because I, I always figure, like, the space of all books you don't need to read is so large that why would we ever plummet? But there is, you know, when I go to a restaurant, I want to know about the bad reviews as well as the good. And really the way we advance our knowledge is by knowing about the errors we've made. I mean, before we had science, we had alchemy. And alchemy is a lot like science, except you don't tell anyone about your outcomes because you want to be the first one to discover how to turn lead into gold. And that meant that every alchemist discovered for himself in the hardest way imaginable that drinking mercury was a bad idea. And the advent of publication of both positive and negative results and of adversarial peer review where, you know, your enemies tell you what an idiot you were and your friends try to gently point out your mistakes, that's what turned alchemy into science, right? That's how we got praxis. That's how we got technology as opposed to superstition. And I think that um, this idea of failure is so important as part of our uh, knowledge creation and advancement project that we've been on since the days of Newton. And it's great to have it linked into music and into other, other kinds of practice. But we don't live in a society that values failure. We've got so many parents and, uh, you know, coaches of, uh, of little league teams and everything, bowling teams. Everybody has to get a trophy, whether you earned it or not. We, we, little Johnny and little Susie, well, we can't damage their self-esteem. They've got to get a trophy as well. I don't know if I agree. I actually think that... Um recognizing effort is what failure, rewarding failure is about. I think that the, the structural problems that we have with not failing are the incredible high stakes where we ask children to start planning. You know, I used to teach at USC at a Fulbright and taught there for a year. Those kids started planning to go to a Big Ten or an Ivy when they were like six years old, and they couldn't afford to have a single thing on their transcript that was less than an A minus if they were going to get into a, a, a good school. And then they were going to go a half million dollars into debt by the time they finished grad school. And so those kids, they showed up for grade nine in September when they were 14 years old, and their courses and their electives were organized around things they were good at that morning. Because if you tried something that you weren't good at, you would um, get a low grade until you got good at it. And so they spent, and of course, that prefigured their electives for the next year and the next and the next. And then that prefigured what, what discipline they go into at university, what their major would be. And then, you know, universities like USC and other really expensive schools, every student has an advisor who one of their main jobs is to stop that kid from switching majors and costing their parents an extra $50,000, right, and by, by having them repeat another year of school. 
And so they weren't allowed to take any electives at the university level that weren't in their core discipline, not because they might not be good at them, but because they might enjoy them and it might, might change their mind about what they were gonna spend a quarter million dollars in four years on and another quarter million dollars in expenses and then grad school. And so then they get into grad school. Of course, you can only study in grad school things that are prefigured by your undergrad degree. I had 26, 28 year old doctoral candidates uh, that I was advising who hadn't taken a single intellectual risk since they were 14 years old, hadn't been allowed to, and had devoted their lives to careers that might not exist when they got out, to um, uh, intellectual endeavors that might have been a fleeting, transient fancy when they were 14 years old, and that had really become their lives. And so I think that if that there, the only way that we can reward failure is by lowering the stakes, by giving kids room to fail, by creating uh, lifelong learning programs that are cheaper, more accessible, more fluid, less around accreditation, and more about continuous lifelong learning and real-time skill acquisition. Otherwise, you know, of course no one wants to fail when the stakes are everything. You don't, you know, you, you don't want to fail. It's one thing to fail on your driving, uh, on your first driving lesson when you're driving around the parking lot in the car with the dual controls. But like with university and education and careers, your first driving lesson is 100 miles an hour on the Autobahn, right? In a, in a car with like a, a super sensitive transmission and a steel dashboard and a no crumple zone, and they've taken out all the airbags. Now, Corey, you, you make your living as a science fiction novelist. You're a blogger. You freelance for a number of publications, uh, and you're a technology activist. I don't imagine when you were five or six yourself, you uh, en envisioned yourself doing those type of things. Of course, blogging probably didn't even exist then. Uh, how did you come to do this type of work to make a living? Well, I'm a four-time undergraduate university dropout. Uh, I dropped out. Uh, I was always involved in technology. My, my parents are technologists and educators and also activists. Uh, and so I was active in political movements from a very young age. And uh, when I dropped out the final time out of the University of Waterloo uh, in a program where I was developing artificial life uh, simulations, as we called it then, with genetic algorithms, machine learning, and uh, I dropped out because they didn't want to accept my um, thesis project as a, um, a hypertext. They wanted it ALA style book, 25-pound bond, double-spaced courier. And I got a job to a job offer to program CD-ROMs for Voyager, which was the hottest multimedia company in the world at the time in New York. And I never looked back. I got involved in early web development. Uh, then I uh, founded a software company and raised $14 million in the capital markets in the dot-com era. And then uh, when that burst along with everyone else's, uh, I had on the way learned about free and open source software licensing, about the uh, use of uh, and abuse of copyright law to shut down platforms where people were expressing themselves, and found myself increasingly involved with Electronic Frontier Foundation who, you know, serendipitously I've been publishing online through that whole period and they valued what I could do there and all these things just came together. Now I was uh, reading about the Electronic Frontier Foundation in uh, on your bio mm -hmm. and uh, to quote what I saw, a nonprofit civil civil liberties group that defends freedom in technology law policy standards and treaties. Mm -hmm. So what what exactly 
Or let me ask you, why are you so passionate of, about those subjects? Well, you know, we live in the age of the metastatic computer, right? Like uh, a building these days is a computer you put humans into. You know, all those willowy skyscrapers in the financial districts of New York and Hong Kong and Shanghai, the reason they can stay up there is because they have seismic dampers that are just computer-controlled masses. You know, bankers work in case mods, right? And we have computers in our bodies, like you and me and everyone we know have logged enough punishing earbud hours that we're getting hearing aids, and they're not going to be like beige retro hipster analog transistorized hearing aids, Turing complete computers in your head, networked, and depending on how they're configured, they'll let you have normal hearing, they'll let you have super hearing, they'll make you hear things that aren't there, they might stop you from hearing things that are there, or they might tell someone else what you're hearing. And it all depends on their configuration. So we live in an era in which our bodies are in computers, computers are in our bodies, everything is being uh, invaded by computers, computers are, are permeating material culture. And so the policies of computers determine all of the things, all of the other questions. You know, our most burning question of the day is not how we configure computers. It's things like basic racial justice and economic justice and climate change and epidemiological disasters on the, in the offing, thanks to economic inequality, racial injustice, and climate change. Mm -hmm. Every one of those fights will be won or lost on the internet. Without free, fair, and open network infrastructure, we don't have a hope of solving those other problems. So the network's not our most important question, but it's our most foundational one. And so that's an area where I think I know how to do some good, and so that's where I've devoted my life. Now, your, uh, your, your main website, uh, mm -hmm. craphound.com, sure. where did you get that name? Well, it was the name of the first short story I wrote. Uh, that I sold, uh, and also the name of an amazing zine that this guy, Sean Tejarachi, who's still around and doing incredible things, used to do. And also, uh, it's an insult from the movie Local Hero. It's a Scottish insult. Uh, back when I lived in the UK, my bank's uh, phone support bank was in uh, Scotland, and whenever I called them and give them my email address, the Scots would just love the fact that I owned craphound.com. Mm -hmm. And Corey, are you from Canada originally? Yeah, I'm from Toronto, where Canadians mm -hmm. are like serial colors. We look just like everyone else, and we're everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, lived in Central America, and San Francisco, and L.A., and London for 13 years, and then in L.A. a couple more times, and I'm back in L.A. now, probably for the long haul. I have an 8-year-old, and she's enrolled in school there, so we're reluctant to move her. So you were telling me about uh, Posey, P-O-E-S-Y, yeah. and tell me uh, about the derivation of that name it's, and uh, what you call her as a little sure. nickname. Yeah, well, it's a Latin word. It means poetry, uh, and also Old English. There's, an, there's a beautiful old essay called In Defense of Poesy. And uh, I'm a great Edgar Allan Poe fan. He invented the detective stories. He wrote science fiction, obviously a great macabre and horror writer and an incredible poet. And, uh, and so I wanted to name my daughter after Poe as well. So P-O-E-S-Y shortens neatly down to Poe. And I, I live in Maryland, uh, not too far from Baltimore, so I go past Edgar Allan Poe's uh, house a number of times. Sure. And uh, uh, one other thing about your daughter, uh, she has a number of middle names. Uh, are those on her birth certificate, or do they, does she just keep adding them? No, no, they're on all her documentation. Poesy, Emmeline Fibonacci, Nautilus, Taylor Doctorow. My dad's a mathematician, so we've got Fibonacci, and uh, Emmeline Pankhurst was this great um, suffragette. Uh, Nautilus, obviously, for Jules Verne and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but it's also a Fibonacci. Taylor's my wife's surname and Doctor is mine. 
Um, I was agitating for even more extreme names. I, I, the Randy Monroe got the idea of, um, I think, t Timmy drop tables from a discussion we had. or Either that or I got it from him. But I wanted to put a MySQL code injection attack in her name. I also wanted plus, plus, plus ATH, which is like the old modem hangup. Just anything to make it really hard to put her in a database. For a while, I wanted to call her like Mary, 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 Sally, Mary, 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 on the theory that they would get the wrong number of Marys on either side of the Sally in each database. And so she would have uh, like her, it would be very hard to merge her records, but uh, my wife's cooler had prevailed. I also lost out on Abkadevki Jekyllmanokwit Stuwixes, which is the alphabet. Super easy to spell, lots of database collisions, shortens neatly down to Abby, but uh, I lost that argument. You sound like you're trying to protect her privacy. <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I think that it's... Uh, it's an interesting time to think about privacy. I think privacy is a bit like carbon. You know, we've put so much private personal information into these silos that are super leaky and badly maintained and inadequately regulated, and it's all going to leak, right? Uh, you know, OPM and, and Ashley Madison, they weren't the earthquakes. They were the tremors, and there's, there's something terrible coming. And the question, like with carbon, because all that carbon that's in the atmosphere is going to raise the world's temperature no matter what we do. What happens is, what, what matters is what we do, whether we, whether we uh, take the alarm to heart in time to stop so much more carbon from being emitted that it becomes irrevocable, or whether the, uh, the consensus arrives too late. And the same is true with privacy, right? Whether or not we, we arrive at the conclusion that speculatively warehousing titanic amounts of potentially harmful, sensitive personal information on the off chance that you can figure out how to monetize it is a uh, colossally bad idea in time to, to actually start taking it seriously and start treating it as though it was the immortal, pluripotent, toxic waste that it is and not potential gold. Well, you talked about monetizing and that something a uh, number of corporations, I mean, that's why they exist, to, to make money. And of course, we all need money mm -hmm. to purchase food, clothing, shelter. We realize that. But is the uh, pursuit of money so strong in some cultures that it, it takes away from the, the love and the respect and the concern we should have for others? Well, I think that that, that may be true. But I don't think that's the proximate cause of the privacy disaster. I think that it's that we allow companies to externalize the cost of privacy breaches. So the thing about personal information leakage is that it's extremely long-lived in terms of its hazardousness. There are people who are merging data out of the old target leaks from two or three years ago with contemporary leaks and combining that information to enact new forms of identity theft. Um, and when Target leaks data or Home, Heart, uh, Home Depot leaked millions of credit card numbers last year along with personal information that accompanied it, the payout was about 30 cents a user, right, plus a gift certificate for credit monitoring. Meanwhile, last Christmas, there were news stories in the Financial Times and uh, the Wall Street Journal about people having their homes stolen because identity thieves were able to forge duplicate deeds by merging multiple leaked PII databases. And so... What, what happens when 1% of the millions of people who had their data breached by Target or home hardware lose their homes? Well, we pay for it, right? If, if there were successful lawsuits that forced those companies to internalize those costs or statutory damages or some other economic pricing mechanism that more accurately priced that private information to reflect the whole life cycle of it, including safe disposal and long-term warehousing, then insurers and shareholders 
would insist that firms be less reckless with how they handle the data. Right now, why wouldn't you handle the data? I mean, there are opp monetization opportunities, just in the same way that, like, if you, um, you know, handle uh, chemicals without due care in, in doing industrial processes, there are uh, ways to do that that are more profitable than costly in terms of how many people you kill and how many how many plants you have to rebuild because they've been made too toxic to work in and so on. There are profitable ways to do it. Uh, and so in the absence of a regulation that requires firms to internalize the cost of worker uh, health problems, health problems in the community, long-term damage to the environment, and so on, firms, I think, will naturally do that, especially... I mean, I think you did have, you, you were right in as much as there are many people who think that capitalism requires that we treat corporations as immortal, you know, transhuman life forms to whom we are like the inconvenient gut flora. Uh, and that cult of fiduciary duty that says that if you can engage in bad conduct that creates a million dollars in fines and uh, makes one million and one dollars in profit, that you're not only like uh, right to do it, but required to do it in terms of your duty to your shareholders. That absolutely is a kind of colossal moral hazard. But I don't think that that's how uh, finance capitalism actually needs to work. Uh, I'm I'm skeptical of the project of finance capitalism, but I don't think I think that it's um, a straw man set up by its advocates that says that finance capitalism goes off the rails the minute we consider anything apart from shareholder value. Uh, I think that we do need to consider broader social issues. Companies, after all, didn't come down off a mountain on two stone tablets, right? The company is the creation of the government, the limited liability comp company. In the you know classical economic concept of what business is, one of the things that businesses do is bear liability, right? And so the idea that you can you can take liability and make it disappear by taking an artificial person and folding it up, that is uh, not a natural part of like Hayekian market economics. It's, it's a, a special legal instrument that was created to enable certain kinds of more efficient commerce. And that instrument should have price as well as benefits. Part of that price should be considering the uh, wider social costs. If we are going to say to the shareholders and the uh, executives of the firm who take the decisions that impose a social cost, that they're absolved from liability because they can put it all in this company, which they wad up like a Kleenex and toss in the garbage when they're done with it, then, then we certainly can impose duties on those firms as, a, as part of that privilege that they gain. Uh, quid pro quo is not unfair. Mm -hmm. Corey, uh, in, in your last response, the one thing that struck me is what can we the the average person john and jane q public what can we do to protect our identities uh should we should we get new credit cards once a year or so so that we have new numbers or what what can we do well so the bad news is there's there's not much you can do individually because this is not an individual problem it's like what can you do to solve climate change it doesn't matter how much you recycle you can't solve climate change right the privacy question is a collective one uh, and so what, what we need, in addition to good individual practice, and there are ways that you can improve your practice. EFF has a thing called the Surveillance Self-Defense Kit, which you can Google, and it has lots of tools that we can use. Those tools are getting better because the audience for them is getting wider, so the toolsmiths are considering more diverse audiences when they, when they plan and, and create those tools. You know, when desktop publishing started, all 
all layout software assumed you're already a typographer. It didn't have to be that way, and now we have typesetting software that assumes that you know nothing about type. And, you know, it's still, skilled typographers can do more than the average person, but the average person can do so much more than they could before. And with privacy tools, they're getting so much easier to use and, and accessible to a so much, such a wider audience. But even while those tools are being picked up and used, and you should, and I think that's great, we need to agitate for better rules and practices uh, from the private sector and the public sector. And you know, when I go and speak at places like West Point Cyber Institute, they say things like, well, Uncle Sam signs my paycheck, but I don't know, I don't know who's in charge of Google. And when I go speak in Silicon Valley, they say, well, I don't trust government as far as I can throw it, but my boss isn't going to do anything done with my data. The reality is that the reason that states are able to affect mass surveillance today is because they raid private databases. In 1989, when the East Germany fell, the secret police there had one snitch for every 60 people. Today, the NSA is about one spy for every 10,000 people they have under, under surveillance. That two and a half order of magnitude improvement in uh, efficiency of surveillance came about in part because we do the surveilling. Right? We pay for the surveillance. In the Cultural Revolution, after they executed your father, they'd send you the bill for the bullet. Right? We carry the phones that know everything we do, all the people we talk to, everything that we talk to them about, who our friends are, what our social graph is, that have cameras and microphones. You know, we foot the bill for, for, for the surveillance. If we expect states to impose limits on firms, then states have to stop being reliant on firms to affect mass surveillance. And if we expect firms to stop feeding our surveillance data to states, we have to not have them in a symbiotic relationship where that's the quid pro quo that they get in exchange for operating essentially without any checks or balances on their conduct. So we need to reform both of them. It's autumn here in the nation's capital, and it's time now for your IEEE USA conference calendar update. On December 1st through 3rd, check out the IEEE WE Forum East in Boston, Massachusetts. The forum will focus on developing and improving leadership skills for individuals at all stages of their careers. Conference tracks will include Inspire, Empower, and Lead. And the forum will also offer workshops on skills and concepts for STEM pre-university outreach, as well as career fairs for students and professionals to connect with growing organizations. Other upcoming conferences of note are on December 3rd, the IEEE Signal Processing and Medicine and Biology Symposium in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and on the 9th through 11th of January 2017, the Computing and Communication Workshop and Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. Be sure to work these conferences into your schedule. For more information on upcoming conferences and to register, go to IEEEUSA.org slash conferences. I'm Georgia Stelluto for IEEE USA. Through November 15th, IEEE members can get a free download of the IEEE USA ebook, Shaping an Engineering Career, Book 3, Advancing to Management, Volume 2. Written by Dr. Alan C. Tribble, the book highlights some of the challenges and lessons learned from advancing to a management-level position in an engineering-oriented company. He explains the different types of management jobs that are typical career growth opportunities for engineers. He also offers advice on how to work within an organization, as well as specific recommendations for technical personnel preparing to transition to management. IEEE members can download a free copy of this ebook by going onto the IEEE USA shop site and using promo code OCTFREE16. 
Members can download a complimentary ebook each month. In addition, nearly 200 titles are available on our shop site. That's all for today's podcast. I'm Chris McMains in Washington, wishing you and your family a wonderful day. This has been the IEEE USA Insight Podcast. Join us again next month as we take a look at news, information, and updates from IEEE USA. If you have feedback you'd like to share, please connect with us by commenting on our IEEE USA Insight article. Send us email at insightpodcast at IEEEUSA.org. Visit Facebook at facebook.com slash IEEEUSA or Twitter at IEEEUSA. I'm John Yaglenski. Thanks for tuning in. Oh,